You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. Good morning, New City. Thanks, Jimmy. How you guys doing? Wow, that was that was weak, guys. How are you guys doing? Okay, thank you. Phew. So make sure you're here with me um, as we uh, continue our sermon series this morning, um, entitled "Jesus on Every Page." And the inspiration for this nine-month journey that we've recently embarked on through Scripture is the conviction that all of the Bible, whether explicitly or implicitly, points to and reveals to us Jesus Christ. In short, we believe that all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is Christocentric, which is a fancy way of saying is Christ-centered. As Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote in her intro to the Jesus Storybook Bible, there are lots of stories in the Bible but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. We believe that the narrative flow of Scripture is either moving towards, surging towards the person and work of Jesus Christ, or it's bursting forth from Calvary and the empty tomb, as we see in the book of Acts and beyond, as the gospel of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen king, begins to wash across the ancient Roman world as the apostolic church in the power of the Holy Spirit carries out their commission to make disciples of every tribe and nation. The Bible was written to us and for us, but it's about him. And that's what this series is all about. Yet even as the canon of scripture closes and and we're given a glimpse in those final chapters of Revelation, a glimpse of the end, the story's still not complete. For we too are swept up in this unfolding epic of Jesus Christ and his kingdom coming upon the earth. We're not left to be passive bystanders or cosmic afterthoughts, but we are to lay hold of this story and to share it with others. We're called by God, the great storyteller of creation and redemption, to image him by telling and retelling his story, by being his storytellers. And to this end, our hope is that in retelling the biblical story, as we're doing here from beginning to end, that maybe we may, we may see some things that we've never seen before, that maybe we'll remember some beautiful truths that we've forgotten amidst the cares and distractions of life. Maybe we can unlearn some bad habits that we've formed along the way. And most of all, our hope, our prayer is that we will encounter Jesus anew 
and in a powerful way in the pages of Scripture over the weeks and months ahead. Amen? Let's pray as we get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come to you, and we come to your word, Lord. And we come from different places. We've had different experiences this week, this year in our life, God. We come to your word, and we are thirsty, and we are hungry. And God, we just ask that you would meet us in your word again this morning, that you would speak to us afresh this morning through the pages of Scripture, God, that you would give our hearts a glimpse of Jesus in a new and in a powerful way. Lord, we just ask, we know that your spirit is here, you're present with us, God. We pray that you would work in our hearts, work in our minds, and open us to what you have for us this morning in your scripture, in this gift of your word given to us to reveal your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, we pray. All right, so that was by way of introduction, but uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at a few different, um, the beginning chapters of the Bible already. Two weeks ago, we looked at the song of creation from Genesis chapters one and two, how God made the world and everything in it, and he declared it good and very good, and how he placed his image bearers, man and woman, in the garden and called them to work it and keep it. And then last week with Matt, we looked at the two trees from Genesis chapter 3 and how Adam and Eve turned their backs on God and on their good calling upon the, and, upon, and on his good calling upon their lives to make their own way. And how this decision served to sever their relationship with him, ushered sin into the world, and left man and woman naked and without hope of return. But God in his mercy we saw would not abandon his image bearers, but he, he clothed them and he promised that one day an offspring of the woman would come who would take upon himself the full brunt of that serpent's lies and venom. And in so doing, he would crush the serpent's head. And so last Sunday, we ended with God snatching hope from hopelessness. And today we're gonna pick up on that same thread of God snatching hope from hopelessness as we jump forward in the biblical narrative and, and look at the account of how God preserved Noah and his family through the great flood, how he made a covenant with him that still holds firm today. And we're going to ask a couple questions along the way or address a couple questions along the way. Why did God send this great flood? Who was this Noah character? What covenant did God make with Noah? And how does this story, this ancient story, point us to the good news of Jesus Christ? But before we get into those questions, we'll need a little bit of backstory. So after the tale of two trees, Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. They were fallen into and broken by sin, and they dwelt, we're told, east of Eden. And their offspring, rather than answer the promise God had given them, seemed only to compound this new miserable reality, succumbing more and more to the poison of the serpent. In Genesis 4, we read of the brothers Cain and Abel, these two, the first and second born of man and woman. Well, they were stark contrasts in how they responded to God. See, both were sinful, hence they were bringing sacrifices, but Abel, we see, was repentant and submitted to God, whereas Cain, in his heart, was neither repentant nor submitted. 
And so we're told in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4 that God had regard for Abel's sacrifice, but not for Cain's. And so Cain got angry, angry at God and angry at his brother. And he rejected God's counsel to turn from sin and to not let it master him. And instead, in verse 8, we're told that he killed his brother Abel after which he was again confronted by God, who told him that his brother's blood cried out from the ground and that he was now cursed to wander away from the earth. Meaning Cain, who'd been a farmer, could no longer till the land for the blood of Abel cried out from it. See, Cain, like his parents before him, was driven from God's presence. So neither of these offspring Abel, who was killed, nor, nor Cain, who did the killing, could possibly fulfill the promise given by God in Genesis 3.15. But as we continue on, we see that the, la- the line of Cain, excuse me, persisted. And with each succeeding generation grew more and more twisted. His great, 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 three greats, grandson Lamech, we're told, took multiple wives and not only killed a man, but bragged about it, taking pride in his acts of lust, his acts of violence, and his cruelty. However, as the fourth chapter of Genesis closes, we are told of the birth of another son of Adam and Eve named Seth, and he himself had a son named Enosh. And so the hope of God's promise was not swallowed by sin and murder, but continued to live on in the line of Seth from one generation to another. And Genesis 5 traces the lineage of Adam and Eve through the descendants of Seth, including with the birth of Noah, this guy Noah, and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this brings us now to our passage this morning, Genesis chapters 9, excuse me, Genesis chapters 6 through 9. So if you'd please open your Bibles with me to Genesis 6, we're going to start by reading together verses 1 through 8. There's Genesis 6, 6, beginning in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide with man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's interesting. There are a few moments in our shared human history which have left a greater mark on our corporate consciousness in the great flood of antiquity. From India to Greece, from Mesopotamia to South America, the flood account permeates the stories of early humanity. 
This cataclysmic event was told and retold over and over again throughout the ancient world. Even as people groups spread far and wide across the globe, they bore this account with them. It was indelibly marked into their their memory. And here in Scripture, we're given insight into the genesis of this collected memory. Excuse the Genesis pun. And as we've read, and just as we've read, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, we see the beginning, the seeds of it. God's good creation and his image bearers have been corrupted by the serpent's lie. Sin had been spreading like a contagion from one generation to the next. And though the descendants of Cain reveled in their depravity, bragging at their violence and immorality, the line of Seth fared little better. Though there were some who continued to call upon the name of the Lord, the vast majority were held captive by the sin of their foreparents. And as chapter 6 opened, we're kind of given a glimpse into the dire situation that Noah was born into and, and that preceded the great flood. We're told that man began to multiply on the earth, which at first seems like a good thing. After all, wasn't that part of the creation mandate given by God to Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the whole earth and subdue it? It was. But as this passage continues, it's revealed that this increase of humanity throughout the land was not God-glorifying. In fact, it was anything but. It echoed repeatedly the sin of Adam and Eve, only now writ large across the swath of this burgeoning population. In verse 2, we read that the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and so they took wives as they chose. Now, I'll stop here for a second. This passage has been the source of much debate over the years about who these sons of God were and who these daughters of man were, and also who the Nephilim were, who are referenced a few verses later. Some think the sons of God were fallen angels, demonic beings who took for themselves human wives and thus intermingled with man. Others think they were mighty men or kings from the line of Cain, like Lamech generations earlier, who took, da- who took the daughters, or took as wives, daughters of Seth's line, forcibly. While a third camp holds that the sons of God were actually the line of Seth, and the daughters of man were descendants of Cain. And this passage is describing not so much a supernatural union, i.e. creating some sort of half-angelic beings. I know it's more the more exciting argument. Nor the ongoing rebellion of Cain's descendants, but, but this passage is highlighting an abandoning of God by the line of promise to follow the fallen way of Cain. Cards on the table. I land in that third camp especially given the language used by the author in this passage. Just look again at verse 2. It says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as they chose. We've heard this language before. In Genesis 3, verse 6, we see that, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, then it was a delight. It was attractive. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. Saw, attractive, 
took. You see, the sons of God weren't simply marrying the daughters of man. They were, they were taking them, just as Eve took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were, they were succumbing to pride and selfishness, to, to covetousness and lust, to violence and greed. So now we've come to the point in the story where Adam and Eve, Cain and Lamech, Lamech and now the descendants of Seth, have all continually repeated the same rebellion. Knowing what God required of them, they turned from him, and they've sought their own way, sought to satiate their own desires and designs apart from God and from his good provision. You guys with me so far? Instead of faithful image bearers filling the earth, sin and pride multiplied across the land. The point where in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, we're told the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And here's the kicker. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So we've come now to the point where God, who had created man and woman on the sixth day of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, who had blessed them and said they were very good, he was now so grieved by them that he regretted making them. Now, please understand, this is heavily anthropomorphized language here. It's a fancy word. The biblical author is not trying to say that God was caught off guard by this development or somehow wished he could go back and do things differently, but we're being given a picture of just how bad things got before God finally said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. What had begun with the sin of Adam and Eve was magnified by Cain and his children, had now overrun the whole earth. God's good, good creation was awash in sin and rebellion. But once again, God snatches hope from hopelessness. For in the midst of all this darkness, we're told in verse 8 that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. We're told he was blameless in his generation. In him, the line of Seth, of the promised offspring, continued. And like Abel before him, he wasn't perfect or sinless, but he sought after and was submitted to the Lord when all others around him were going their own way. He held fast to the promise that God would one day redeem and restore creation by sending the one who would crush the serpents. Head. And so in Genesis uh, in verses wait, where are we? And so in Genesis 6 verses 17 and 18, God made Noah a promise. He said, "Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you. Now this here is the first mention of covenant in scripture. This word that will become so central to God's redemptive relationship with his people. And we're going to talk a little more about what this means in a few minutes. But first, we're told that Noah obeyed God. He spent what must have been years building an ark. 
a massive wooden structure built according to God's prescription that would see him, his family, and two of every animal through the floodwaters that God would bring upon the earth to cleanse it of humanity's evil. So in this scene, we're seeing that through Noah, that creation mandate of Genesis 1 now was being redeemed. God was using him to steward the earth, to have proper dominion over it, not in selfishness and pride, not in lust and covetousness, nor in violence and greed, but in humble submission to God, trusting in his good and righteous purposes. And finally, we're told in chapter 7, verses 11 through 12, that it was in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, a lot of details there, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. For 40 days and 40 nights, we've now arrived at the most familiar part of the story. The part we all know from Sunday school, from growing up. If you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard that refrain. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And God delivered Noah and his family with him on the ark through the perilous waters and brought them months and months later safely once again to dry land. And we know how after coming to rest atop Mount Ararat, Noah sent out bird after bird like ancient aerial reconnaissance drones in order to get a sense of whether it was safe to disembark. So rather than retreading the details of the great flood, we're going to jump forward to what follows. Noah and his family and all the animals with him set foot once again upon the earth. But it was now an earth that had been washed clean a creation that had been revitalized after having been subjected to generations and generations of man's depravity. And Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, records for us the first thing Noah does after exiting the ark and God's response to him. We're told that then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Noah, delivered from the cataclysmic outworking of God's judgment against humanity's sin and rebellion builds an altar and offers sacrifices to God. And like Abel, generations earlier, these sacrifices were pleasing to the Lord. He had regard for them because Noah's heart was submitted and repentant, full of gratefulness to God. And not only did God receive these offerings but he made Noah a promise to never again curse the ground. Even though the flood had not washed away the inclination of man's heart, even Noah's heart towards sin and evil, God promised never to strike down every living creature as he had in the flood. 
And having issued this promise, God in turn blessed Noah and his family in chapter 9, verse 1, and he commissioned them anew to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, thus marking a new beginning or a second chance. Where the great flood can be described as a decreative event, its waters mirroring the primordial waters of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, Noah and his family leaving the ark to enter a world washed clean can likewise be categorized as a recreative event. Even though sin still marred creation, even though death still reigned, God was beginning again. And to commemorate or to ratify this new beginning, this second chance, a little later in chapter 9, God made, makes his first covenant with man in recorded history. Beginning in verse 8, we, we can read about this covenant. Verse 8, chapter 9, or chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as have come out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. In the ancient Near East, actually, before that, seven times in that passage, seven times God speaks the word covenant. Seven times he repeats this word, emphasizing the importance of this moment and the centrality of this exchange for all that would follow. In the ancient Near East, covenants were a type of legal treaty or a formal agreement used to bind two parties together, one party usually being the sovereign or more powerful party, the other being the vassal or weaker party. It's not unusual for historians or archaeologists to find records of covenants made between imperial powers like Assyria and Babylon, and then smaller regional powers or kingdoms that sought protection either from them or from others around them who would do them harm. And without getting into too many details, a covenant would entail certain terms that must be met, obligations placed upon both parties in accordance with their respective roles, and then consequences if those terms weren't met. When a covenant was made, it was almost always accompanied with some kind of sacrifice, usually an animal being offered up, both to seal the covenant in the eyes of the divine whoever that might be in a given culture, as well as depict the consequences of what will happen to any party who should choose to break a covenant. 
And as we'll see in the weeks and months to come, throughout the unfolding of God's redemption story, covenants are essential to how he relates to his people. Beginning in this passage, God enters into five covenants with his people. Five times the Lord of heaven and earth binds himself to his image bearers. This covenant, the first covenant, is known primarily as the Noahic covenant, very original, and has been also called the covenant of common grace because through it, God made with Noah and his sons, um, because through it, I'm trying to say here, oh, because through it, God made this covenant with Noah and his sons and all creation that life would never be cut off again. It was repeated over and over again, would never be cut off by the waters of the flood. And if we take into account the promise he made earlier in chapter 8, verse 22, that says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease, then we can safely understand this covenant to say that God will never wipe away life on earth by such catastrophic means at least not until time has run its full course. So this covenant that's being made here is good news. Noah and all those after him, which includes us, can take heart knowing that God has bound himself to his promise to never again judge the earth in such a fashion while time continues. And God's image bearers are called once again to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The creation mandate of Genesis 1 is renewed here. And to mark this new beginning, God places his bow in the sky, a sign of the covenant, which bears witness both to heaven and earth, that God would henceforth preserve his creation and would deal with the sinful inclination of man's hearts another way. Because even though this was a new beginning, it wasn't yet new creation. But building on this new beginning and the promise of Genesis 3.15, the next four covenants that we'll encounter in the months ahead, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the new covenants, will each successfully further pull back the curtain of God's redemptive plan, revealing just how this just and righteous Lord will make a way to fully restore his image bearers and his creation and finally make all things new. So we're getting there, but we're not there yet. For today, let's close this part of God's story by addressing the last of those four questions we asked earlier. How does this story point us to Christ? Well, for starters, this story of man's widespread depravity, of God's judgment on sin, and then God's deliverance of his people, in it we can begin to see the contours of redemption the pattern of what's to come. We're given a glimpse of how God would continue to work throughout redemption history. In this story, God both judges and delivers humanity. He judged them by sending the flood, and he delivered them by bringing Noah and those with him through the waters of judgment. He both executed justice to the uttermost and yet extended great grace to his people. The pervasiveness of sin in the world of Genesis 6 reflects the state of all humanity after the fall, even after the flood, even after God wiped away all those who were in total rebellion against him, sin persisted and it spread. We see the reality of this even before we reach the end of Genesis 9, where we see Noah, the righteous man of God, falls prey to temptation 
And then his son, Ham, doubles down on it. And so the fibrous root of Adam and Eve's original sin lived on from generation to generation. This judgment brought by God in the flood was not enough. Another judgment, a greater judgment was needed. A judgment that would finally do away with the power and hold of sin once and for all. The deliverer brought by God and the person and work of Noah was not enough. Another deliverer, a greater deliverer was needed. A deliverer who would save us, not just from judgment, but would save us unto righteousness. The ark which carried Noah and his family through the waters of judgment was not enough. Another ark, a better ark, was needed. An ark of salvation that would bear us not just through the temporal waters, but eternal waters as well. And the sacrifice that Noah made was not enough. Another sacrifice, a better sacrifice was needed. A sacrifice that would truly and finally wash away the stain of sin. And lastly, the covenant God made with Noah was not enough. Another covenant, a better covenant, was needed. A covenant that would not only preserve creation, but would make it anew. That would not only preserve life, but would undo death. But in Jesus, in Jesus, the story of Noah finds its fulfillment. It reaches its theological end. The line of Seth, the offspring of Adam and Eve, culminates with the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, who, who like Noah, was born into a sinful generation, a light shining in the darkness that the darkness could not overcome. In Jesus, God's judgment against sin was fully realized, where the flood only ameliorated sin as Christ laid down his perfectly righteous life on behalf of his sinful people, the power and hold of sin was broken once and for all. In Jesus, God's deliverance was made complete. In his death and resurrection, he not only took the judgment that was our due, but he conferred his perfect righteousness to us. He delivered us from our deserved end and gave to us what only he truly deserved. In Jesus, in his cross and resurrection, God provides a better ark, an ark of salvation that bears God's people, bears us not just safely to dry land, but to heavenly shores as well. And in Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice for sin was made. God's own son, the perfect and spotless lamb, offered himself up as an offering for all those who would come in his name, finally and truly washing away the dark stain of sin and rebellion. <clears throat> and lastly, in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, another covenant, a better covenant, was made between God and his people. And this new covenant assures us that not only will God preserve his broken creation, but he will one day make it wholly new. And not only will he preserve his people on the earth, he will wholly redeem them, undoing the power of death, and he will dwell again with them forever.
Turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 and following. In this glimpse of the end, this glimpse of the fulfillment, the Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. In Jesus Christ, once and for all, God has snatched hope from hopelessness. The sin of Adam and Eve, the rebellion of Cain and Lamech have been swallowed up. And even though the world that we live in is still broken, we can truly take heart for Christ has overcome the world. And we who are in him have overcome it in him. And this morning as we come to the table, as we come to the table of this new and better covenant, this covenant that not only fulfills the Noahic covenant, but far surpasses it, this covenant in which God himself has taken on flesh, fulfilled our obligations, and has received on our behalf the consequences of our sin. In Christ, we know the justice of God and the grace of God are both poured out to the uttermost. And we, his people, are delivered, not through the floodwaters, but through the waters of sin and death. His broken body and shed blood, our ark, our refuge of salvation. As we come to the table this morning, city, as we come to the table this morning, let us rejoice that our great and good deliverer has come, a better deliverer than Noah. Let us take heart knowing that we have this sure ark that will see us through the veil eternal. The flood can no longer touch us. Let us repent of our sins, lament our hurts, knowing that he has taken the judgment of God on our behalf and he has clothed us in righteousness. So we are free to come. We are free to throw ourselves at his mercy, knowing he is faithful and just to forgive us and to wash us clean. We may boldly come before the throne of God's grace, knowing that Christ's sacrifice will never fail. And let us hold on to hope, for his promise and his covenant are sure, and his love for us will never cease from here to eternity. Let's pray.